0: And so we're going to spend about 15 weeks this summer going from Genesis to Revelation and kind of stopping at different points uh, through the scripture and look at these turning points. And I hope that we can have like a big understanding of scripture as we do this. And so today we're always trying to start with um, a question. And so I I got this from the front. Yeah. And so... um, if you are, uh, so we want to break off into groups of like threes and try to meet someone for the first time. I know it can be a little awkward, but we, we like talking to each other here. It's like an extroverted church. All the introverts kind of cry when they come to church, but uh, extroverts are really happy. So we'd love for you to meet someone. And they're two very separate questions. So I would just kind of start with the first one and answer it. And if you have time, go to the second one. But how do you use the Bible in your life? Is the first question. And when someone says "you do you and I'll do me," what does that what does that mean? All right. So I'll just give you guys like three minutes to talk about it. And if you came as a couple, go ahead and try to meet like one other person. All righty. All right. Thanks so much for sharing, everyone. Really appreciate it. Probably just got through your names and intros. My bad. I cut it off so that it doesn't get like really quiet and awkward. (laughs) Um actually I didn't get to go through like just one announcement real fast. If you're here, like if you're a renew bee, a new person to renew, we'd love for you to go on Facebook and join our Facebook group. So we have a Renew Church Facebook group. We have a Renew Young Adult Facebook group, a Renew College, and a Renew Families, and it's just a great way to get plugged in. We do all kinds of events uh, throughout the week, and people just kind of post when they're hanging out, and I think that's one of my favorite parts of our community is that there's like real friendships here, and people see each other throughout the week and invite each other over. We had like a Memorial Day barbecue put on by Nick and Daniel, and... Uh, we watched a game at Jonathan's house and, and Justin's place. And so every week, like, we're doing stuff and we just kind of blast it. And so we'd love for you to just jump into that. Or if you're bored studying at a coffee shop by yourself, for you to put that up there and maybe someone will join you. Not creepy. Um, and also, like, as we go into the summer, every, every church kind of goes through a lull in the summer as people are on vacation and mission trip. And so I just want to encourage us as best as we can to try to come a little earlier. I think that would do a lot in terms of our community. I know uh, this guilt has filled the room, uh, except for, like, the new people who always come on time. But um, I just think that um, I know for me, I get a lot of stuff out of service when my heart is prepped, you know, when I'm kind of ready to hear and I have my heart open. And I just envision our community one day coming, like, 10 minutes, I know it's, it's going to be a miracle, but like 10 minutes before service starts and like socializing, drinking coffee, or just kind of praying to the side, you know, talking it out with God. Uh, I, I don't know. We, we loiter for like an hour after, but if we could just move that like 50, like a little bit forward, you know, like take 10 minutes of that hour and plug it into, anyways, I don't know. It, may, it might just be a dream, but... Um, Yeah, just want to encourage us. And if you come late, like, don't feel shame and guilt. Still come. Don't be like, oh, I'm going to be late. I shouldn't show up. Wilson will call me out. I promise not to call you out the first time, so. (laughs) All right. So today we're just gonna do an overview of the Bible in terms of what it is and how we should read it. So we're not even really jumping into the narrative yet. We're just trying to understand the Bible and also understand what it looks like for it to be contextualized in our culture, okay? So first, what is the Bible? It's 66 books individual books written from Genesis to Revelations by 40 different authors. So some authors have wrote multiple books, like Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, Paul wrote a few, Luke wrote a few, and it spans over about 4,000 years of history. And that's a little debatable. Some people will say six, some people will say longer, but we'll just put it about 4,000 years. And also it's divinely inspired by God and written by man. And so this idea of inspiration comes from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, where it says, All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true, make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. So this idea of inspiration is um, that God partners with man in order to write Scripture. So he uses the author, he uses their historical context, he uses their uh, vocabulary, he uses their personality. You see a lot of the author in the writings of scripture, as opposed to like, you know, their eyes rolled back and them being possessed and God just like moving their arms and they don't even know what they're writing. So we we don't think that that's how scripture is written. We think that God is using man, inspiring these authors in order to write scripture and I think a lot of us understand this. We've um, felt like we've done ministry beyond ourselves and the power of the Spirit, right? We've uh, talked to someone and felt like, oh, God gave me something outside of me to speak to this person. Or when you're serving somebody, you feel a sense of love that overwhelms you beyond your capacity. And yet God is still using you. He's still using your personality and who you are. And I would just kind of amp that up like 10,000-fold When it came to writing scripture, that the Holy Spirit inspired, empowered a person to write scripture in a way that is uh, completely true. So it's this partnership between God and the author. And then secondly, um, or thirdly, we believe that it's true in all that it says. So the Bible is infallible. For very truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. So Jesus is quoting, or Jesus is, is teaching his disciples that everything in scripture is true. And everything, every word, every like stroke written will, is true and will come to pass. And I think that, you know, we're Christian, you know, a lot of us are Christian, not, not all of us. And we're, we're Thankful if you're not Christian and willing to learn about the faith. But for most of us, we kind of take a lot of this for granted. Um, And it doesn't seem to bother us, but I want it to. I want this to bother us because it it really puts us at odds against our culture to say that something is true in an absolute way. That we're saying scripture is true beyond my life beyond the life of christian culture or christian community we're saying that scripture is true for muslims and for atheists and for buddhists that this is a truth that governs all truth that's really uncomfortable right we're saying that jesus is lord not just over christians but over everyone and we don't like to use that language it feels awkward to have that exclusive truth claim but Being Christian and saying that God wrote the Bible and that all it says is true is an exclusive claim. Saying something is true is exclusive because you're saying that everything that opposes it isn't just another option, isn't just another opinion, but it's false. Um, That's that's hard for us to really communicate and sit with. So I want to give you a little history of of truth and absolute truth. So Plato is one of the fathers of modern uh, philosophy, I would say the father. Um, And he had this idea that propagated where everything has an essence and there's a truth that lies outside of us. There's an absolute truth. And we are all or should all be on this journey to understand this truth. And some of us will see it more clearly, some of us will never find it, but there's something out there outside of us, outside of something we create that is true, that we're all trying, that is, is absolutely true and outside of us. And that's kind of Plato's idea. Um, and we've all kind of fallen into that throughout history and sought different means and ways to find this truth. So for most of human history, we looked to religion whether it's the Christian faith, the Islamic faith, the Buddhist faith, or um, our tribal cultures. And we said there's someone up there that has truth in his hands and is disseminating it through maybe a prophet or a religious leader, and we're all on the journey of trying to understand it. And so even though there's always been disagreement on what absolute truth is, for most of human history, we agreed that there was a truth to be had, there was an absolute truth to journey into. And then World War II came along, and along with atheistic evolution. And this really kind of turned a corner in how people perceive, perceive truth. And so during World War II, as you know, Nazi Germany uh, took, took over a lot of Europe and slaughtered Jews and, um, and other people, gays, lesbians, they slaughtered lots of people, and they had this very elitist view of, of um, white people. And, um, and there was this kind of view that if you're not, uh, okay, so the view that came out of this is that truth is oppressive. Because they have this truth, it's actually subjugating everyone else and making them enslaved to to their truth. And it caused a ton of violence, right? And then that's the same thing with Marxism. In uh, Stalin's regime, and as it spread throughout a lot of Europe and Asia, um, many people were slaughtered who didn't agree with with Marxism, another truth that dominated and um, enslaved people. And then you have You know, the US fighting communism, kind of representing the truth of a republic, and then lots of people died in those wars as well. So that's what's going on in human history. People seeing these leaders or uh, ideologies that say we have the absolute truth, and that then leading to slaughters and wars and concentration camps. And on the other side, you have a greater embrace of theistic evolution this idea that God doesn't exist. And when you couple the two together, um, you have relativism. So theistic evolution really lends itself to this postmodern thinking that there's no absolute truth and that your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. Because in being an atheist means that you know, the universe started dark and cold, there was an explosion, but one day it will end dark and cold. And Where do you derive ethics or purpose or any type of absolute truth from that? You don't. And secondly, there's no real power. Um, And so in terms of above humanity. And so if there's no God, why would I ever let you dictate truth to me? Because we're equal beings, right? Your eyes are as good as my eyes. Your thoughts are as good as my thoughts. So from an atheistic perspective, we would, I think it makes total sense to say that I'm deriving truth from myself and I don't want your truth to impact or to dictate what I believe. And that's kind of the world we live in now. And I know there's some really good uses of this, you know, basically saying, get out of my face, I'm gonna wear what I want or kind of go my own way and that could be good. But I think there's also the sense that you believe what you believe and I'll believe what I believe and we'll stay on our own lanes and, and that's fine. You know, and that's the way the world should work because we're reacting, you know, uh, yeah, we're reacting to World War II where truth dominated people and slaughtered people. And so the idea is that if we remove truth, there's no, high, there's no one to, to dominate us and we might even achieve like world peace. Is the, is the idea, which is a pretty cool thing to think. Like, I would go that way if I wasn't Christian. Um, and so, um, so I think what, what I'm trying to say is that this makes a lot of sense in our culture. And if I wasn't Christian, I would totally ascribe to this through and through. But what does it mean to have... God exists. I think once you insert God, our God, you know, not a little God, but like a big God, all powerful, all knowing, all uh, creator, um, maybe good, you would have to say that now there's something outside of me that has the bird's eye perspective, that has truth in in his grasp, right? So once you, if you take away God, Truth should be relative. But when you insert God, you would ha- I think you have to say truth is not relative anymore because someone holds on to it. So whether God is, exists or not should completely influence our philosophical perspective. If God is real he, and he has opinions, then there is truth. And we can say as an agnostic that, okay, truth is out there but I'm functionally a relativist because he's not revealed truth to me, so I will have to just kind of do my best. But as a, believer, as a Christian, we're not just saying that there's a God and there's a universal truth. We're saying he's actually revealed it to us in Scripture. And I feel like that's extremely invasive <laughs> in a good and bad way, depending on you know, whether you want to be invaded by truth or whether you just kind of want to do your own thing. Um, But that's really, I think, some of how we, I hope that as a community, we can approach scripture and be okay, acknowledge the tension between where we are as believers in God's existence and his revelation to us, direct revelation through scripture, and how different and maybe even abrasive that is to our current culture. Cause what I see is us trying to hold the two together a lot. To say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna believe the scripture's true, but that it's okay that you don't. And I mean, we can nuance that, and in some ways that's true, but are we okay um, thinking? more clearly and saying um, if God is real, if we really believe in this God in the way that he claims so that there's no other gods but him, if we really believe that he's revealed truth in scripture, um, are we comfortable sitting with that and saying there is a real truth and I want to live by it? And I believe it governs the whole universe, even when people don't acknowledge it. That's, that's a difficult position to take, and I think that's one that will challenge us in this generation and for many to come. Now, I do want to put out the caveat, and I think the good part about this movement towards relativism, there's some upside to it. I think one of it is kind of the um, unhinging of authority, of absolute authority, especially human authority. And so we look at our leaders very skeptically, especially compared to, like, you know, the past because they've done some atrocious things. And I've kind of embraced that. I don't know if you feel that way with me, but I love being a part of this community as a brother. Um, And when we look at Scripture, it is perfect, but our interpretation is, is imperfect. My interpretation of Scripture is imperfect. And yet, that doesn't make us, like, even if we have disagreements on how Scripture is interpreted, and even if we know that our interpretation will always be somewhat flawed, I think it puts us still on a different trajectory than a relativist. So a relativist would kind of just, you know, if you imagine, like, uh, on this level, there's no truth, and on the ground level, relativism is like, go a thousand different directions, and it's fine. And then for the Christian faith, it's like there is truth. And I think on the ground level, we're saying we have Scripture, but we can't interpret it perfectly every time, even though I think that a lot of it is clear. But we're all kind of reaching in the same direction and trying to engage our mind and our soul and our spirit, engage our community around Scripture, saying that there is truth, that God's revealed truth, and that uh, we want to live by it. And so the trajectory, instead of like a billion arrows and a billion directions, is all of us uh, seeking after scripture, thinking about it clearly, asking the Spirit to speak to us, and allowing us to speak to each other in it. Um, All right, so there's my philosophy class. Um, All right, how is the Bible meant to be read um, and used? So I think there's a lot of different ways we use the Bible and some are good and some are really bad. (laughs) I remember when I first started reading the Bible, it was like this mystical book, right? I would like cuddle with it when I got scared, you know, (laughs) throw it at shadows in my room to like kill demons. Um, and then I would kind of use it as, like, that eight ball that tells the future. You shake it, and then, like, this cube thing comes up, and it says, like, absolutely not, right? So in the same way, I would be like, God, should I punch my sister? And I'll open it up, and I'll, like, point at a verse and see if it allows me to punch my sister. And um when he's not here. Okay, good. And so, um, and I think we, we've probably done that, you know, like, uh, you know, just kind of throw it open and, and read it. Um, and then another way we can approach the Bible is like Google or a dictionary, where we look at—we have a subject in our head. We want to see if we should marry this girl, or uh, whether dating's in the Bible, or how to have a healthy marriage. And we just kind of type it in and see what comes up. Another way we've used the Bible is Hitchhiker's Guide through through the galaxy or through life, right? Where we—it's um, like a handbook. It's like a self-help book where we're struggling with anxiety or depression. And so we read some verses that encourage us. Then we paste it on our Facebook wall and hope we get likes, right? We put, we put it in cool font, put a filter on it, um, have it filter our face. And then other times we take the Bible and we use it as a textbook. And it's purely intellectual and academic, trying to learn about God, um, trying to learn about, um, you know, understand there's like a Old Testament philosophy, or uh, class I took, Old Testament survey. And my professor was like such a nerd in the OT. And he wrote an article on the types of horses that King Solomon asked to have, right? And I was like, this is boring. And I don't, I don't feel like it's going to make me love Jesus. But he was like, it made me love Jesus. Um, Thirdly, I think, um, and wrongly, the Bible has been used as a weapon, as a way to, you know, once you say the Lord said this, like, how are you going to argue that, right? Um, So whether it's a pastor or whether it's a a government system, sometimes they'll abuse scripture in order to have people comply or in order to dominate over others. And I just want to say, kind of stop here and say, like, truth doesn't have to be and shouldn't be, I think, oppressive. It shouldn't, it shouldn't enact us to change out of shame or control or dominance. And I was just kind of reflecting with one of my brothers um, um, on, you know, fighting sin and stuff. And I just said, you know, it's pretty cool that I've come to a point where I recognize God's voice of conviction, and He's not yelling, He's not kicking me around. He's not pulling out lashes. Because Jesus took a, a lot of that. His voice is so gentle and so filled with love. And I realized that that condemning, shameful voice was never from him. I thought it was, but now when I hear God, it's like this really gentle voice that's filled with truth and love. And it it inspires me to follow him, and it just kind of cuts through my defenses and my, my facade and my pretending to be holy. It, it, it takes away all of that because I put that up there because I don't want to be unloved, but his voice is like cased in grace and love and gentleness, and it just kind of cuts right through to my soul, and I just want... To, to change. And I hope that, that you start to hear God's voice in that way. Um, so my argument, although a lot of these ways to use the scripture may not be um, bad, I think a lot of them are partial and not primary. So I would say the primary use of scripture, the primary way we should read scripture is as a story, as a large narrative. And if you look at Scripture, about two-thirds of it is in narrative form, meaning it's telling stories and it's going through history. And about one-third is propositional truth, like the Book of Romans, where it's kind of making this strong argument. And um, let's see, what is it? 70%. So 30% is uh, Proverbs and, um, and poetry. But the high majority is a narrative. And so when we read it as a story... It's not just kind of any story you pick up, right? It's like Breaking Bad, pretty much the perfect sitcom of all time. It has this beautiful arc, um, beautiful, perfect arc. And, and the cinematography communicates as much as the dialogue. And we have this character transformed from Walter White, a chemistry teacher, beloved husband, uh, mostly good, although you see hints of pride, into... Um, Heisenberg. And when he takes on this other name, he doesn't reconcile his life anymore. At first he reconciles why he does what he does with, with like a good purpose. And once he takes on that Heisenberg name, you see him kind of become and embrace this other man. And one of a really powerful scene in the in the show is when his partner Jesse his his girlfriend's choking on her own vomit after day OD. And he's watching her and he could turn her to the side so that she lives. But you see his ethics continue to stretch into becoming more evil and he lets her die. And it's just this amazing uh, transformation of a man. Now, one of the worst things you can do to me is to say, I want to see if Breaking Bad's a good TV show. I'm going to go to season three, episode four and just watch an episode see if I like it. I might punch you. I probably won't. But I'll throw something at you, something soft, like a cotton candy. So if you like cotton candy, you might want to say that to me after service. But I'll throw it really hard, and I'll aim like the stick at your eye. So anyways, um, it's, it's um, but it won't hurt because it's, you know, probably blink. And anyways, so with, um, with Breaking Bad, there's, the author is so intentional about placing every scene, every season together so that there's um, a beginning, there's a climax, there's a resolution, there's development, there's an evolution of not only his character, but his family and even his own self-awareness in the community. And that's really what the Bible is trying to do. As, it, as you read through scripture, not as a textbook or as a Google search or as a, you know, as a whatever else, um, it's unfolding this magnificent story that every author has their books and their intentions strung together so that there's this redemptive story from how it was meant to be to the fall through the history of Israel into our church, um, our, our period, and all the way into the conclusion of the human uh, first earth chapter of, of our story. The second part is that Jesus is the main character. And so Jesus, after his resurrection, talks to Moses and he says, and beginning with, or sorry, talks to his disciples and says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So as the story of the scripture unfolds, we see Jesus as the cornerstone of, of God's redemptive plan. But Oftentimes we jump there and we don't kind of understand everything that's going on because we don't understand the full arc of the story. And then lastly, did you hear that over the... (laughs) I really tried. I like closed my mouth and covered the mic. All right. So the last part is our purpose. Um, um, As we understand... This unfolding of God's story, it always, it's always an interaction with us, uh, us as humanity. And in these different chapters and eras, we're all, it's all about worshiping God, but we do that in different ways. We live that purpose out differently. If I was in Eden, I would worship and have a different kind of means to my purpose than if I was a Jew in David's time, than if I was a Jew in exile, than if I was a disciple of Jesus, then being here uh, with you at Renew. And so I think as we see this arc that God's creating, this story, we get to find our own story in it. We get to look at our lives, our families, our community, and say, how do we fit into this really precise and epic uh, chapter of the story that God's writing so that in a really profound way, we aren't making up our purpose. We aren't fabricating our truth. We aren't constructing our own journey because in the end, when, when we do those things, we might be convinced that it's fulfilling to us, but there's no way we can be convinced that this Is actually important in the arc of things, in the arc of humanity. But when we plug our story, our gifts, our community into this big story, we get to be a part of human history in the way that God's created us to be. And so I just think about the challenge this is to us as individuals and us as a community. And I wonder, I wonder if we're willing to have God's truth revealed by scripture supersede our truth. Um, I wonder if we're willing to take scripture and say the things that is in it, even if it's against what our whole culture believes, maybe even what I believe, I'm going to have my life... Am I true subjugated to this? And I also wonder when we look at the, the story we're writing in our lives, the path that we want to take, the vision we have for our future, is it a part of this arc? Or is it just us going our own way? I, I really hope that as a community um, and in my growing family, that our lives and what we do here would matter, that we wouldn't have wasted our time, that we would see the way we live and the narrative we're writing, and we could say, this fits. This is a part of the bigger story. We're living one page of it in a massive epic, but we're in there, and we're doing what God's creating us to do. Um, We're living out the purpose he's called us to live. So as we go through um, our next 15 weeks, which is like way too short for what we're trying to accomplish, so I'm begging God for mercy on that. Um, I hope we would, I think minimally, um, I hope we would understand this big story in a really... um, you know, basic way, and we would understand how we fit into it as a community and as families and as individuals. And maximally, (laughs) I pray for you to read the Bible uh, through it. I pray that you would read through the Bible um, because we're skipping a ton of it. Um, I pray that as a church, we would become part of that story that we would see the way God's moving, and we would join into it. And I pray that you would come 10 minutes early next Sunday. God, thanks so much for our time. Um, We're really grateful for truth. And I think we live in a culture that puts up our middle finger to it. Like we hate it, we despise it, we run from it. But I pray that this community, um, your children, would long and desire truth. And you are so good that not only do you hold truth in your hand, but you've shown it to us through your scripture, through your spirit, through your church. And will we, will we want to live lives that matter because we're living lives um, in your truth and in your story? Um, I just want to encourage us to take time to pray and talk to God about these two questions and be real with him Um, in the ways that you've lived his truth. Just celebrate that with him in the ways that you've suppressed his truth. Maybe we could confess that. And then after you've prayed and as we go into worship, I would love for us to take communion. Um, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I just think about his place in our story, how he took on humanity, how he broke his body. He shed his blood in this redemptive story. And we just want to partake in that inwardly as we ask for forgiveness. But also we want to partake in that outwardly as we live like Jesus did in sacrifice and in love and in truth for others.